you know, when I was growing up, um, one of the big pushes in terms of mantras was absolute faith, absolute love, absolute obedience. And so even if it doesn't make sense to a lot of people, that's how they've been trained is to just completely Mm -hmm. obey. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Jen Kiaba, an artist and educator who grew up in the infamous Unification Church, a religious group referred to by popular media as the Moonies and a primary example of a cult. After escaping a forced arranged marriage, she fought her way out in her early 20s and went on to earn her BA in art history at Bard College. Welcome, Jen. Thank you so much for having me, Renee. Oh, I'm so glad that we connected and that you're here. And I hate even to say the Moonies because I know that it's sort of a derogatory way of referring to the Unification Church. What do you think of that that term for it? It's a term that growing up we used for ourselves as well. It doesn't really bother me when I hear people say it, but I do know that older members consider it a pejorative. So I don't Mm -hmm. take offense when people use it. And I know that the public tends to not necessarily remember the Unification Church, but if you say Moonies, they're like, oh, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's something that I let roll off my back. Also, and I remember we talked about this when we first uh, got connected, I always thought of the Moonies as sort of a punchline, mm. that that it was sort of the, the easiest target when you think of a cult or extreme religious views or coerced religions. Mm-hmm. In my head, growing up in the 70s and the 80s, it was like the Moonies was sort of like, uh, the Moonies, right? right yeah. And I think you and I talked about how this was also, this is kind of a dangerous and damaging thing to occur as well. And do you want to talk a little bit about that, like the cutesiness or the sure. kind of the kind of smallness of it with the Moonies. Yeah, I mean, I I think that um, that punchline that you're talking about, it comes from movies like Airplane or Saturday Night Live with the Night of the Moonies. Um, and, And I think that the danger in that, like I've seen both of those things and I think they're funny. Um, but I probably would not have if I'd seen them when I was like, 18, 19, you know, when I was mm-hmm. still struggling to, to ferment uh, my own personal rebellion. But I think that the danger in it is twofold. One is that it definitely creates stigma for survivors, um, mm-hmm. especially people like me who are second generation or multi-generation people who've grown up with, you know, their grandparents or great-grandparents who've, who've been in a group because uh, what it does is it makes these people feel like, you know, the public views them as stupid, as punching mm-hmm. bags. And then mm-hmm. on the other side of it, it it puts people into this false sense of security, like, I would never be that stupid. But Mm. the research shows that we all go through periods where we can be vulnerable to undue influence. And so um, it tends to be that when we think that we are the most invulnerable, in fact, we might be missing the cues of a dangerous group or a dangerous relationship. So, Wow, that's so interesting. I'd love to know a little bit more about that. So even if you feel that you have maybe your, for lack of a better way to describe it, like your head on straight and Mm -hmm. you know where you're going and you're directed, you can still be vulnerable. It's not just for people who are experiencing uh, undue stress in their life. I think that those are the points that we tend to be most vulnerable. But, you know, the example that I use is we've all gone through 
the most hellacious year and a half at this point. We are all in places of incredible vulnerability. And I think that that's why so many people have been latching on to these ideologies that we look at as extreme because they're looking for comfort and they're looking for solace and they're looking for answers. So I think that any time that we've Mm. gone through that stress, a big transition, when we've experienced loss, these are very, very human experiences. We all will get to a point where we can be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. I think that the more that we are educated about the tactics used and what undue influence looks like, the more we can protect ourselves. And that's why the work of cult educators is so important in my mind. But I think that the reason why I do kind of hammer on about the we are all vulnerable line is because it is so important for us to understand what we're up against and Mm -hmm. that it's not just, you know, stupid, broken people that get caught up in things. It's that we all might experience a time where we do just want to like fall into somebody's arms or a group's mm-hmm. arms mm-hmm. and just like say, take care of me, please. This hurts too much. And mm-hmm. again, I think with COVID, a lot of us are like, yeah, gosh, I can relate to that. And so it's a perfect time to drive home that message of empathy. Yes. And I wonder in your mind, if there are any groups or movements, and you don't have to necessarily (laughs) name check them, but uh, I know we're gonna dig into the Unification Church and your personal experience in a moment, Mm -hmm. but the first thing that comes to mind is that I've spoken to some people who had a very interesting experience with certain types of yoga Mm -hmm. and and yoga kind of uh, societies and sort of ashrams Mm -hmm. that became coercive. And Mm -hmm. I know in certain businesses, when you're starting up a business, you have to completely invest sometimes in multi-level marketing. So I'm wondering Mm -hmm. if any any particular companies, organizations, or (laughs) movements come to your mind, and you don't have to name them necessarily, but do you feel this is relevant today? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I recently wrote a post on my blog about the American workplace and the toxicities in the American workplace and how it can trigger cult survivors because there are so many similarities in just like our capitalist structure, generally speaking. But then in terms of um, certain workplaces like Amazon and Apple, there are things that are required of these employees and the amount of their lives and their, mm-hmm. you know, um, emotional and mental involvement that are required that I look at and I'm like, mm, that checks some boxes that I mm-hmm. feel like are maybe a little bit dangerous. And I've experienced workplaces where I'm like, okay, this wasn't what I would call a cult with a capital C. But mm-hmm. if we look at cultic environments as on a spectrum, there were some culty things happening here. There was abuses that definitely resonated with um, the old wounds that I had. So I think it's a totally relevant question, and it's something that, again, if we learn about basically what coercive control looks like mm-hmm. as sort of like a big bucket or category, the more that we can understand how that toxicity manifests in a yoga environment, in a startup, in a multi-level marketing environment. These aren't always necessarily bad things, and and one thing that I've heard uh, cult researchers talk about is that um, even in this sort of bucket of cult, there's a spectrum of abuse. You can have something that checks a lot of boxes for like, oh yeah, this could be a cult, but it's not as abusive as something like maybe the children of God where we're talking about sexual exploitation of children, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and in terms of religion, what we consider um, kind of uh, conservative or traditional or really established religions, mm-hmm. do you find a lot of intersection there with the yeah. coercive control? 
Yeah, I uh, I actually just had a conversation with Phil Drysdale, and he does a lot of work with evangelical Christians who are deconstructing from their mm. experiences. And I think that um, when I think of spectrum, I'm thinking of something that's like three-dimensional. It's not just a line. You know, there are so many quadrants of our experiences mm. that intersect. And I recently read uh, Alice Gretchen's book, Wayward, And so she grew up in the evangelical Christian movement as well. And she's really deconstructing purity culture for young Mm -hmm. women. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, my God, I so relate to a lot of what she's talking about. And so um, for me, participation in some of those conversations and reading these books is really helpful for me to understand my own experience because they are so similar, even if we would consider evangelical Christianity to be mainstream, Mm -hmm. really there can be so much religious and spiritual abuse within those smaller churches and even within sort of like the larger ideology. I think it gets really tricky, especially when anyone joins a group or an Mm -hmm. organization where someone else is maybe going to do the thinking for them, where Mm. you can ease your mind and sort of give over your worries to someone, which Mm -hmm. is comforting. And I think a lot of us want that. Um, We don't want to be in control all the time, but it's a very vulnerable position to put yourself in, and especially Mm -hmm. if you're raised in it. And so let's talk a little bit about the Unification Church. Here are some quick facts I found, and I want you uh, to just stop me whenever you disagree or if you want to agree and then we're, we're going to build into your story okay. um, so for anyone who hasn't heard of the Unification Church before what I found is that it's a religious movement founded in South Korea by the Reverend Sun Myung Moon originally known as the Holy Spirit Association for the Unification of World Christianity and the sect shifted in the 1990s into a collection of independent organizations associated with the unification movement I would just stop and say, like, that's a really nice way of saying it has a (laughs) lot of front groups. It's a multi-billion dollar organization, and all these front groups are different pathways for you to enter into the larger organization, Um, and there are different ways to interface with the public and also bring money into the larger organization, too. Ah, so there's not just this one monolith. There's a lot of different little tributaries Mm -hmm. that go in. Yeah, Uh there's um, Dr. Steve Hassan has an incredible, I think it's like a 77-page list of all of the various uh, associated groups with the Unification Church. And it's like their businesses and their think tanks and stuff. It's huge. People think the the Moonies have gone away. They are very much here. Even the Washington Times is... um, it's, it was started by Reverend Sung Myung Moon, and it's been a, a huge part of the shift in our political conversation since it was founded. Well, that's really interesting. I wonder how, well, we can maybe circle back unless you want to mm-hmm. hit this now, but so interest, interested in knowing how he got such a foothold in the U.S. Oh, there are so many books about that. Um, I think that John and then Gorenfeld's book, Bad Moon Rising, really does a wonderful job breaking that down. Um, but basically, in the 70s, there was a big push to have especially young, pretty females befriend the senators and start getting meetings with them. Um, and so there was this gradual entree into the political right. Reverend Moon supported Nixon. Um, so yeah, there's there's just so much in there. But for anybody that's interested in a really juicy read, Bad Moon Rising mm-hmm. is the place to go for that. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. I wrote that down and I'll put that in the show notes as well. Excellent. Um, so I have here that since its founding in 1954, and I bet you have some more updated information. <laughs> the movement has attracted hundreds of thousands of members in more than 100 countries. And uh, d- is that accurate in your in your mind? 
Uh, it may have attracted that number, um, but I would always be very suspect about attrition rates. And mm, again, mm-hmm. like, what does attracted mean? Does it mean that somebody attended a conference that they didn't mm-hmm. know was associated with mm-hmm. the Unification Church? Or do they mean active members? I think um, full-time active membership is a much, much lower number, probably mm-hmm. closer to four four digits instead of five. Okay. Um, As a teenager, Moon studied the Bible and even taught Sunday school. When he was 16 years old, Moon says he had a vision in which Jesus appeared and told him to complete the task of establishing God's kingdom on earth and bring peace to the world. Yep, that's the mythology. Um, Apparently, and I don't know if you were going to get to this, but apparently, you know, when he had this vision of Jesus, Jesus told him that it was not his mission to die on the cross and that his true mission was to get married and have a family that would then engraft humanity onto God's blood lineage because he believed that the fall of man was a sexual sin that Mm. separated humanity from God and engrafted humanity onto Satan's blood lineage. So then Moon um, basically believed that he was then not the reincarnation of Jesus necessarily, but the second coming of Jesus. And he has Mm. all sorts of uh, Bible quotes taken out of context and misquoted to, Mm. to verify and justify that. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. And so then, yes, tagging on to that, and tell me if this, this fits in. Because Jesus, the second Adam, was executed before accomplishing his mission, a third Adam was needed to form this perfect marriage. And are you laughing? It's yeah. just so funny. I mean, really. I'm sorry. Continue. <laughs> okay. And complete Jesus's task. This third Adam would be recognized as the second coming of Christ. As the perfect man, he would marry the perfect woman and become the true spiritual parents of humankind. Members of the Unification Church regard Moon and his second wife, Hak Jahan, as these true parents. Married couples and their families within the movement are regarded as the true children and linked to God through the true parents we called moon's children the true children and then families that had been married in the mass weddings that moon performed were blessed families and then the second generation were called blessed children so there was sort of this caste system there um Mm -hmm. i've i've never been considered a true child before (laughs) you had to have been Mm -hmm. born of moon and his second wife and it's Mm -hmm. you know it's so interesting when you say you know perfect woman Mm -hmm. uh hakshahan was 16 when he married her and he was in his 40s. Um, hmm. And uh, I think Sammy Park is his uh, one of his many illegitimate children. He gave a talk about uh, his mother's experience with Moon. Apparently she was in line to be the true mother um, because she was from a very rich family and things did not work out there. And so apparently for his perfect wife, Moon was looking for a young, ignorant, um, mm-hmm. uneducated woman who would not fight him, I guess, you know? Mm-hmm. And so like when you hear that in context with the the perfect woman, it's just sure. chilling, really. Well, right, because it sounds like this woman would have her own agency, but when you, yeah. you talk about someone who's basically a lamb or someone a who's- child. Yeah. Well, A child, and, yeah. A child, yeah. And they called the, oh, oh, I'm getting chills. They called the marriage ceremony of Moon and Hakshahan the marriage supper of the lamb. Yeah, um, so gross. <laughs> and so she grew up. She grew up in the Unification Church. I would assume she right? did. Yeah, uh, her mother, I think, was Moon's cook, um, and uh, her mother, I think, was a single mother. And um, 
brought Hak Jahan into the church when she was very young. So like from a cult researcher standpoint, Hak Jahan would have been a second generation who was brought up in this cultic environment. But again, in the caste system of the Unification Church, anybody who was brought into the church and not born in was not as high of a mm-hmm. caste as someone who was born in, you know, just to complicate things for right. listeners. Well, it also makes me feel like anyone who came to the church late would have sort of, and, and if they really believed it, would have this sort of despair that they could never be of the true yes. strong yes. bloodline, right? And what yeah. would you do to try to become part of that? And um, Lisa mm-hmm. Cohn, who I introduced you to, mm-hmm. um, wrote a memoir to the moon and back, and that is like one of the things that propels her in her search um, for her own identity within the Unification Church because her mother brought her in when she was 10 and I think that is like one of the core wounds that she faced. Mm, right. Well, any yeah, you bring children into this, which we're going to get into mm-hmm. that difficult uh, area in a second. Um, so and then this is something that I think a lot of people understand from the popular culture is the holy marriage blessing ceremony is a core yes. ritual by which couples are removed. This is quotes, quote, removed <laughs> from the lineage of sinful humanity and engrafted into God's sinless lineage. End quote. Some of the people who get the blessing are already married, though many are arranged marriages because Moon rejected the idea of romance romantic love. A blessing ceremony in 2009 included 20,000 couples from around the world. That sound about right? Well, I don't know how many live human beings actually participated in this or people who were actually aware of, again, the connection with Reverend Moon. So one of the things, there's sort of two things at play here in the numbers. Mm -hmm. One is that Moon started marrying dead people. (laughs) Um, It's actually super dark and I laugh, but um, this started when Moon's 16-year-old son passed away in a car accident because his theology was like, in order to go to heaven, you had to receive this blessing. It created this um, theological issue. So Mm. he married the spirit of his dead son to the daughter of his right-hand man. Um, And I grew up normalizing that, but then also Mm. having nightmares that someday I might get married to basically a dead person. Mm. So Mm -hmm. it just really gross there um but yeah Yeah. these older women were married to you know buddha and muhammad and jesus i remember there was uh one mansion that moon had and you'd drive by and people like oh yeah jesus's wife lives there (laughs) wow yeah so there's that one piece of it the other piece of it is that um there again a lot of these ancillary organizations they would bring in ministers in their congregations and be like oh we're doing a vow renewal you know do you want to renew your vows so people might have participated without again knowing it was unification church and what they were agreeing to right all in the service of doing what moon needed and wanted um and it kind of reminds me just a little bit of the mormon church i believe at some point we're trying to convert dead jewish people to their faith awesome. without the Jewish people who had suffered in, in the concentration camps and died knowing about it um, because what? they were trying to increase their numbers. Yeah, later, okay. there's something in the news about that a long time ago. My father wow. is really well-versed in, in Jewish history and, and mm. all that, and so he told me about that. So, okay, so Moon died in 2012, mm-hmm. and I have here that the movement split into various competing factions. Would you say mm-hmm. that's true? Yes. Yep. Uh-huh. And that his widow, Hak Jahan Moon, is considered by many in the movement to be the Messiah and the mother of humankind? 
So it's um, so fun to have you laugh at this because I like the way that kind of diffuses. I mean, I know it's it's very serious stuff we're talking about, yeah, but it's yeah. it's nice to have your your opinion and input on this because I feel like it gives you a voice and people who don't believe this or people who've been hurt by this a voice. Yeah, yeah. and I mean that's that's really my goal is to give the people who've been hurt the opportunity to be heard through this. Um, and I feel very sorry for the people who are still in it who believe it and who feel offended by my laughter but mm. I have to laugh because my own pain is so wrapped up in this so I was out about six years I think when um this all you know when Moon died and I think the core of the schism really comes down to a couple of things Moon um I think he was like 92 when he died and I think there were concerns about um just his mental fitness mm. I think that he may have been suffering from Alzheimer's. And um, because the organization has so much power over a, a human labor force, and because there's so much money coming in from uh, member donations, member fundraising, all of these associated businesses, there was a power struggle for control of that. Supposedly, you know, he had named his youngest son as his successor, um, but I believe that Moon was a narcissist and so mm-hmm. um would change his favor every now and then and again probably uh suffering from alzheimer's as well there's complications there but you know supposedly he crowned his younger son multiple times but then said actually you've displeased <laughs> me you know so and so is going to lead the organization now mm-hmm. and so um i think what ended up happening is his wife rested power away and so you know, on one hand, I feel very, very sorry for the abuse that she suffered because he, I, th- I think this, her story is like he kept her locked in an apartment. She had like 13 children, was living in abject poverty mm. for a while. I basically think he tried to break her. So she was definitely a victim that has become sort of this mafia boss. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she's wrested power away and has really changed the ideology to focus more on her. I think that she's started to like rewrite a lot of Moon's words. Um, And so at least one of her sons who has uh, the schism that people may have seen in the news with the guns at the wedding, um, he calls his mother the whore of Babylon. So, (laughs) you know, there's, everybody has sort of developed their own theology to prop themselves up as like the true leader of this group now. So let's talk about the guns at the wedding. Can you, you know, I I, and I and I hate to make you a total historian because I really do want to get into your personal story. But I I don't know as much about that. And Mm -hmm. so I'm curious if you can explain a little bit about the wedding and the guns. Sure. Uh, I can explain what I understand. And again, I was out for so long that I have sort of this outsider perspective where I'm like, this is really upsetting. Um, And so I've done my own research to try to understand where this is coming from. So some Mm. context is the first time I ever found out that the church manufactured guns was when I was 17 and I was fundraising. And um, somebody came up to me and just basically told me like, how do you not know this? And how can Reverend Moon be for peace if he manufactures guns? And I later learned that it wasn't just that he manufactured guns. He was actually manufacturing like parts of weapons that he was selling to other countries and stuff. And his justification was kind of twofold. You know, one was that he thought we should take over all industries um, because that would wrest things away from Satan. Of course, it wasn't about Mm -hmm. money and power. (laughs) Um, But then also this idea of someday we may have to defend ourselves against Satan. 
Satan. And I grew up saying a pledge every day that like, I will fight with my life. This I pledge and swear, you know, I will run into the enemy camps and judge Satan's people with the weapons that God has been judging people for 6,000 years, you know. Mm. So there is definitely um, this kind of thought reform tactic to make us believe that uh, we were these powerful liberators of people. We had these holy songs that were very militaristic. We called them marching songs, and they were really about like being heavenly soldiers for God. So mm. I think those things are very, very tied up in the ideology, and I think there's a lot of cognitive dissonance for members about that because, again, uh, you know, the main line is, is that, you know, we're about ideal families and world peace, but then there is this very strong undercurrent of there's weapons and, and we will judge you and we will fight. Um, and, and fear, so, right? And there's so much absolutely fear. Absolutely fear, yeah. And and obedience to mm-hmm. this authority figure. And so I think that the, the youngest son, um, Hyungjin? Hyungjin? I get them mixed up now. Um, a lot of us use shorthand for these people because there's like so many H nims. Mm. <laughs> so we're like H2. Is it H1 uh. or H2? So the youngest son, um, he split off. He was the one that was crowned multiple times from my understanding. And so he took a group of, of people and defected and he had his church, the Sanctuary Church in Pennsylvania, and now they've recently bought property in Texas. But he uh, really kind of unearthed that ideology about, um, you know, we have to build this kingdom of heaven and we have to defend ourselves. We have to create this peace militia. Um, his brother, hmm. Justin Moon. So Sean Moon. Sean is the, is the uh, American name for this leader. His brother, Justin, uh, Korean name Kukjin. Uh, owns car arms. So they manufacture like the Desert Eagle. I think they have the patent for the Tommy gun. Wow. So it's this perfect marriage in a sense of, hey, we make money off of these weapons, but also we have to defend ourselves from Satan. Mm. So somehow, and I cannot draw a logical straight line in my mind to these dots, but somehow Sean decided that he had a revelation from the book of Revelations that the rod of iron that is discussed um, is in fact a semi-automatic weapon. Mm. Uh, and I don't know if car arms happens to manufacture that particular weapon or not, but he had people bring their weapons to this marriage ceremony. So second generation were married with their guns at their sides and you know other people had their their vows renewed and if you could see me on video you'd see i'm like frowning and making this face because i still i cannot i cannot tell you why that makes sense to them mm-hmm. i know that it does you know mm-hmm. they somehow, somehow are able to reconcile it yeah exactly exactly and um you know <sighs> When I was growing up, um, one of the big pushes in terms of mantras was absolute faith, absolute love, absolute obedience. And so even if it doesn't make sense to a lot of people, that's how they've been trained is to just completely mm-hmm. obey. And and so, yeah, I mean, I think that this is sort of the insignia for them to say that they belong to this group is this weapon and it's become a part of their identity. And so Sean and Justin Moon have like really um, integrated themselves with what we would consider to be the more far right in this country right now in terms mm-hmm. of um, Trump supporters. They're very much, I, I think Sean has gone into what we would consider QAnon ter- territory mm-hmm. at this point. Mm-hmm. 
But this is interesting because you really can see how something that seems completely out in left field, uh, literally, can become kind of more normalized and yeah. part of this other faction in our country that is mainstream or becoming mainstream. And then all yeah. of a sudden it's kind of what's expected and not too surprising. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think that it's not that Sean woke up one day and told a bunch of, of people that we would consider to be normal um, in, in sort of the greater cultural sense. Like, hey, you need to get married and bring your gun with you. Most people <laughs> would be like, ah, no, okay, thanks. But because it is this this gradual progression of I'm going to accept this new thing now and I'm going to accept this next thing, it's, it's really baby steps to get there, especially if we're talking about Moon having manufactured weapons since like the 60s or 70s, there's mm -hmm. been a long time, especially for the first generation, to accept this, normalize it, and let that ideology sort of morph into what the sanctuary church at least is today. And mm -hmm. again, we've seen that with uh, American culture as well in terms of the shift in, in conservative politics to something that might have been more center focused to mm -hmm. where it is now. Mm -hmm. so, and so when did you leave? I left when I was 21 officially, although I think I started thinking about leaving when I was 14. So again, we're talking about baby steps. Mm -hmm. And and I think the thing is, from conversations that I've had with other survivors um, and people who've joined, and I say joined in air quotes because I tend to think that people who get involved with these groups don't really know what they're getting involved with. And again, mm -hmm. it's a baby step progression until they're fully immersed. Um, it's never, very rarely, is it this single moment of clarity and I have to get out. I think that there are these compounding moments that snowball over time. And so for me, my breaking point was being 20 years old and being considered too old <laughs> because I grew up thinking I'd be married by the time I was 18. I'd normalized that. I'd normalized the fact that Moon was supposed to pick my partner. I wasn't allowed to date. I wasn't really allowed to have outside friends. Um, and then, you know, again, being 20 years old and being faced with that actual reality of mm -hmm. Moon pointing to me and pointing to a stranger and saying, you are married. Like, I fought very, very hard to get out of those circumstances. Um, but I think that for me, that was that moment of clarity after six years of being like, I don't know if I believe this. This is really messed up. But if I leave, I lose everything. Um, mm -hmm. That was that moment for me of like, oh, my God, I, I cannot do this. And it took mm. me almost two years to get out of it. It wasn't a, a legal marriage, but within the church, it was still something I had to get leaders to sign off on and sign paperwork. Otherwise, I would have been hounded by him and his family and my family for years. Um, I signed the paperwork the day before my 22nd birthday. And uh, even as I struggled, I was very, very open with people about my struggles. Um, the community really turned its back on me. But mm -hmm. the moment that I had like signed on the dotted line, it was it was like I was done. There's no official shunning process in the Unification Church. Like in Jehovah's Witnesses, they mm -hmm. have disfellowship and there's a process to be disfellowshipped. And then um, you can actually be brought back into the organization, too. And there's a process to go through that. But this was really like ghosting. You know, people mm -hmm. stopped talking to me. They stopped inviting me to their weddings. They stopped, um, you know, returning my messages. And so I, I really did lose my entire everything, everything my entire community. Yeah. 
And and where were you living at the time? I was actually, uh, <laughs> I was caretaking for my mother. So I had been in New York City and I moved back home to take care of my mother uh, while she was going through cancer treatment. And so, you know, you didn't live on a compound, is that right? When when you were growing up in the church, can you, mm-hmm. you know, I guess we better go back now and, and sure. figure this out, like for the listeners. <laughs> so you... You know, your parents, can you, it's so hard to encapsulate a life in a short mm-hmm. amount of time. I realize that. Um, and that's why I really hope, you know, you're writing a book. I think you, you said you are writing a memoir, right? Yeah, I finished it and I'm uh, on submission to agents right now. Great. So we'll get the full story soon. Hopefully, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, so your parents uh, grew up in traditional religion? So my parents... I don't think either of them were religious. My mother was born in Mexico to expat parents, and she came to the United States when she was seven, and I think that was a very traumatic transition for her. So, you know, in writing, you would consider that the childhood wound, right? Mm -hmm. And my father grew up um, in New York City. His father died when he was 11. Mm. Um, And I I think his father... uh, went through cancer treatment for about two years too. So he witnessed a lot of pain in that regard. Um, His mother was Christian. His father was Jewish. My grandfather on my mother's side was Jewish, but she did not grow up with any religion. So I don't know that either of my parents actually grew up in what you would consider religious households, Mm -hmm. but I do think that both of them do fit the profile that many of us think about in terms of wounded people looking for family and meaning. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, they both joined very, very young. So there was something you feel they fit that sort of type of person who has lost something mm-hmm. and is trying to fill it and doesn't have something from their family? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the research suggests that there is no one psychological profile of people who are vulnerable to cults. But I think that um, my parents' stories probably underscore most people's ideas of who is vulnerable to cults. And and they met before they joined? or they? I don't think so. Um, I think my mother knew of my father because he was an assistant to Moon's right-hand man. Um, and mm. so they were working for one of the church front groups. They were matched by Moon in 1979 in the New Yorker ballroom, the New Yorker hotel ballroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this would have been an event probably kind of late at night. And it's, you know, imagine everybody's left their shoes outside of the ballroom because <laughs> you don't wear shoes indoors in at least the church. And I know in, you know, some Japanese and Korean households as well. Yeah. Uh, and so everybody would be either standing, men on one side, women on the other, or kneeling on your knees because you don't sit... Uh, cross-legged that's rude and you don't sit with your feet pointed out that's rude too Mm -hmm. and moon would have been there for hours pointing to people and some of the stories that i've heard out of that matching are horrendous in terms of like moon saying incredibly racist things about people of color like oh who's going to take on you know the the spiritual baggage basically of this person being black or something Mm. like that or who wants to take on the baggage of this mother who has children already so just really toxic stuff said Mm -hmm. um but yeah he pointed to my two parents they would have gone out of the room spoken briefly you were supposedly able to say yes or no but you really didn't say no to the man that you thought was the Mm. messiah Mm -hmm. and then they were married in uh, madison square garden in 1982 and that is generally the mass wedding that most people associate with the unification church 
So I'm the oldest of five kids, and um, most of the members lived in the New Yorker Hotel at that time. It was called, I think, the World Mission Headquarters or something. And um, my mother did not want to live there because she didn't think it was an appropriate place to raise a child. So she moved us out to Queens, which was very rare for most members to do. What part of Queens were you? We were in Forest Hills. So she would commute to the New Yorker Hotel to work, and she would leave me in church daycare. And, you know, one day basically found out that it was a super super neglectful kind of environment. She showed up, and there was, like, nobody there and all these children crying. And she Mm -hmm. was like, I'm done. Ran away to Arizona to spend time with her parents and then ended up moving into what was called a center. And so a center isn't necessarily a compound, but it is a communal living space where a bunch mm-hmm. of members and their families would live. So there are a lot of members, maybe even still today, that are living in sort of these more communal environments. So yeah, my parents were a rarity in my earlier years in that they didn't live in uh, one of those sort of communal environments. The Moons did have what I will refer to as compounds, not in the sense of like um, the Rajneesh compound in Oregon Mm. or Waco or anything like that. But Moon did have uh, many properties all over the world. And a lot of the properties were mansion properties reserved for him and his families. But there would be a lot of people that lived there in almost like a servant capacity. Um, And then sometimes like outbuildings that families lived in. So for example, I'm near the Unification Church Theological Seminary, and uh, you could consider that a compound. It's hundreds of acres, but there are a lot of um, family dwellings on that property. Mm -hmm. And Arizona, did your father go with your mom when she took, did she take the kids to Arizona to be with her parents? I was the only one that had been born at that time. She was Mm -hmm. pregnant with my sister. And she would always tell it as like she tried to run away from my dad. Um, But then he came out for a conference and then they ended up. So she either had a fight with my parent or my grandparents who probably tried to get her out of the group or I don't know what. But she ended up moving into a center with me. And then I think that's when my dad showed up Mm -hmm. for a conference and then they decided to get an apartment together. Mm -hmm. Do you understand them to have been a good match? I mean, you know, no, no, I don't think that there are many, many couples in the Unification Church that would be considered a good match, certainly not amongst the first generation. I'd say anecdotally, the mass majority of the stories that I've heard are from uh, families that are incredibly abusive and dysfunctional. Mm. Well, so I guess I have two questions. One Mm -hmm. is, was your mom, can you look at this at all separate? Can you separate her from the way she raised you at all and and say whether or not she intuitively was a good mom? Like, did she have a shot at being a good mom or maternal? Um, I think that she tried her best. I really do. Uh, And that's sort of a cop-out answer in some ways. No, I don't think so. I think that from my understanding, part of the way that the Unification Church would recruit people involved a sort of psychological breakdown. And that's their model was something that researchers really studied in terms of trying to understand this concept of brainwashing or mind control because people did emerge from some of their conversion experiences seeming like completely different people. Hmm. And so 
I grew up not knowing that necessarily, but understanding that my mother had different personalities. There was like her church personality and she called herself a fundamentalist Mooney. And then there was this like really adventurous, funny woman with this kind of like raunchy sense of humor. And I loved her. You know, she mm-hmm. she was not the most responsible person. Um, my youngest brother just recently came back from doing a month on the road and he did this little slideshow for us of like all of the national parks that he visited. And I was like, oh, I remember that road on the way to the Grand Canyon. Mom, like kept us driving past the last campground and then like pulled us over and had us crawl under the barbed wire on the side of the road so we would just like camp out in the middle of nowhere (laughs) and my little brother who was not there at the time he's eight years younger than me he just looked at me and goes like oh my god really and then my other brother goes like yeah that totally sounds like mom and at the time I was 15 I thought it was great you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think there is this sort of duality of like, she was an incredibly maternal person. She loved being a mom. She loved taking care of other people's kids. She wanted more kids. And I just don't think that she was equipped by the church (laughs) Mm. or, you know, just in and of herself. She hadn't done the work on herself to be the mom that she could have been or wanted to be. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think part of that was the dynamic of her relationship with my father. You know, if they had had a healthy partnership, it might have been different. But also part of it was the ideology that she was raising her children in to, you know, she was brought up to believe or she was brought up within the church to believe that her children would be perfect. And so Hmm. she told me when I was very young and and probably, you know, misbehaving, um, a lot of members, you know, they were told that when their blessed children were born, they'd be so perfect that they wouldn't even cry as babies. Hmm. Um, And so... That's what she would tell you. That's what she would tell me. Yeah, I heard that multiple times from her. And so I think that their... uh, there was a lot of resentment in that, like, in the normal development of children, children expressing their needs, children developing these inter, uh, independent personalities, mm-hmm. those were things that she was trying to suppress. And and I just finished your book, and those are things that, like, you really highlight in your mm-hmm. book, um, and they really resonated with me. And, yeah, I think that those are the things that my mother struggled with the most. I think that she really tried to quash that. Sure. Well, that differentiation and that um, autonomy that kids are supposed to have right. from yeah. their parents. And, and I would imagine especially some some parents really enjoy the younger stages before their kids start <laughs> to fight back or start mm-hmm. to push back. And it can be really upsetting to parents who don't have the tools yeah. to deal yeah. with that. Was your father a good dad? <sighs> my father was not equipped. And again, that sounds, you know, it's a similar answer with my mother. Um, you know, he, I'm, I'm learning now that he grew up with a clinically depressed father. Um, apparently even as a baby, he was taken with his parents so that his father could get electric shock therapy. Mm -hmm. Um, and then his father was diagnosed with cancer at eight and died when he was 11. Yeah. And, Uh, His mother is a very difficult woman. (laughs) That's the nicest thing that I can Mm -hmm. say about her. And so um, I look at him, again, not only as a victim of the church, but also a a victim of a a really incredibly difficult childhood. I think that 
he tried really, really hard to be a good dad. I think that he really loved us, and I think that he was also abusive and made incredible mistakes. And that's an uncomfortable duality for all of us to hold about our parents. It's like, man, they were awful in so many ways, and they really tried their best. You know? mm, yeah. Well, that did you come to that that latter that latter understanding um, recently, more recently, or did you always think that he tried his best? Uh, I think that my mother socialized me to have pity for my father at a young age. Hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, he was physically and verbally violent. And, you know, she would tell me things like, you can't get angry at your father. You know, he's mentally ill. Because I think she knew about the family history of mental illness. Um, And, you you know, so she sort of weaponized it a little bit. But I think that it created sort of this uh, toxic parentification in a young child. Mm -hmm. um, And then also didn't allow me access to my anger to be like, sure, my father is not behaving appropriately. And I deserve to have a parent that will protect me and not hurt me. And so those are things that I'm still processing. Like it is not a comfortable conclusion that I sit in. I still have to go into the anger and say my anger is part of what protects me and sets healthy boundaries. And the truth is, is that he probably does love me. He probably thinks that he tried his best. Mm -hmm. And all of those things are true. Did he hurt your mom too? Was he physically, so he was physically abusive across the board. Yeah, I mean, he really only hit her a few times in my memory. We, as children, were definitely more his targets. And I think that he would hit out of anger and he would lose control. Um, But he was definitely more verbally abusive of her. And I think, you know, emotionally and financially as well. Did, did, what was the Unification Church's stance on physical abuse or, or discipline? Was it pro, against, neutral? I think that it was, in terms of domestic violence, if a man was hitting a woman, it was the woman's fault. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, the woman had to do more work to basically save the man. You know, the man was subject in the Unification Church ideology and woman was object. Those were the words that we used. And so the woman had a mm. submissive role. She was supposed to support the man. And in her memoir, um, In the Shadow of the Moons, uh, Moons former daughter-in-law Nong Sukong talks about how her husband did cocaine and, you know, abused her. Um, Even when she was pregnant, he hit her like horrible, some of the most horrible abuse you can think of. And she was consistently told it was her fault and it was her job to save her husband and bring him back to the fold, so to speak. And Mm -hmm. so that ideology trickled down into all of the members. Now, from the perspective of children, I don't know that there's anything in the theology that says, yeah, you can hit your kids, but I think it was very much like anything that you have to do to keep your kids on the straight and narrow is okay. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, if we were acting out, both of our parents probably looked at hitting us as being okay. You know, they were going to spank Satan out of us or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that unfortunately it's a theological structure that while not overtly condoning violence, it does support it. Mm-hmm. And what about you? You had siblings, but you were the oldest. Did you mm-hmm. have anyone? You mentioned that you you didn't really have friends outside of the church. Did you have 
anyone that you could trust with your doubts before you turned 14 and the doubts started to be to, to, to really start to begin to take root for the next years until you left did you have anyone you could look to sibling or friend and be like this is a little I don't know like I'm not happy <laughs> or I'm I'm confused or were you isolated that way emotionally I think that my sister was really the only person that I could talk to, and I didn't have the language um, to really be able to identify my experiences. I was taught that everybody in the, quote, outside world was evil, so I wasn't allowed to share anything. And then my mother also sort of layered in, if you tell anybody what's happening in our family, teachers, friends, etc., the government will come in and take you away and you will be put into foster care. That was a mm. threat that was, you know, constantly levied at us. And so it was very isolating. Mm-hmm. But my sister, uh, Lonnie, was somebody that I could be like, oh my God, these people are weird. And she'd be like, yeah, I know. And, <laughs> and my sister, I think throughout my process was, I mean, she and I were both consistently re-indoctrinated in, and so there were times where, unfortunately, we would reinforce the ideology to each other, but she was really the place that I was able to go to with my doubts. Now, the church also had a policy that you report on each other, too, mm-hmm. so we invaded each other's privacy all the time. We'd read each other's diaries. Our mother would read our diaries. We would tell mm. on each other, you know, mm. so unfortunately, there was no one safe space But there were certain people in the church that I was able to make friends with that I'd be able to share doubts with over time. And so some of those people I am still involved with as friends, um, I think most of them are out at this point. Mm. But I remember when I left, I was like, I have five people that are my touchstones. And as long as these people think that I am still a good person, I'm going to be okay. And Mm -hmm. one of the first person on that list was my sister. And Mm -hmm. then two of those people were friends of mine that were still in the group. One of them was transitioning out and one of them left many years later. Um, But yeah, yeah, there was, you know, in in the cult research, uh, there is this uh, concept of the secret self or that secret identity that is the, the person that you protect from the cult members where you are developing those doubts and maybe Mm. those talents and you know artistic expression and things like that and it is sort of a a key moment in people's um, processing to find safe spaces that Mm. they can share those doubts and that secret self so I was very lucky that at least as a teenager I found a couple of those people but growing up it was my sister Mm -hmm. did she leave as well Yeah, she did. Um, All of my siblings are out to some degree, and the Jehovah's Witnesses um, who have left have given me language to sort of differentiate. They have this concept of, you know, physically in, mentally out. And so uh, that was my sister. She mentally got out at 16, but still it took her many years to be able to physically extricate herself from Mm. our, our family life and from our home. Um, And so all of my brothers are out, but some of them are still sort of physically dependent on the church financially or Mm. for shelter and things like that. So, um, yeah, I still try to be a bridge to to those individuals that are not self-sufficient yet. So... Jen, is trust, has trust at all been an issue for you or an area you have to work hard on? It is, and it's it's interesting because there's sort of duality in that. In one sense, um, developing self-trust is really mm-hmm. important because that mm-hmm. was something that we weren't allowed to have uh, mm-hmm. growing up. 
but then trusting others can be really difficult. But because we were taught to have these permeable boundaries, everybody could access your inner thoughts, your feelings. Mm. Um, and so learning the appropriateness of trust can be very difficult. People who leave these high demand groups, and, and I sort of swing on both sides of the spectrum, can either have a tendency to be too trusting or mm. not trusting enough. And mm-hmm. so either way, you can get hurt. You can either over-isolate yourself, which I have done, or you can trust people that are not trustworthy, that have not earned your trust in and both places. Has that happened to you as well? Oh, yeah, definitely. I've, I've had um, mentors and coworkers and even friends that have not been healthy dynamics and, mm-hmm. you know, usually ending up having to cut things off because it's like whoa whoa it's Mm. like there will be a certain violation where you're like nope nope this has to be you know ended here right so there's a boundary I would say that would you agree that that is connected to boundaries and knowing where to Mm -hmm. draw them and what's yeah because I I mean I know I had some trouble with boundaries as well emotionally and I would imagine in, in an extreme upbringing like yours it would be there too yeah, if you're taught to have no boundaries or permeable boundaries, um, and again, like going back to some of what you talk about in your book about um, that discomfort in your relationship with your father because mm-hmm. he is um, treating you in an inappropriate way and, and treating you more like a partner than a daughter and your struggle to find that appropriate boundary and not having mm-hmm. a maternal figure there to even give you a buffer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it is such a normal part of development to to learn about boundaries. And if you don't have a parent who's facilitating that, it's super hard. But when you have parents that are actively breaking your boundaries down and telling you that they're evil, that's so, so difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, you sound, I know we haven't met in person, but you just sound so level-headed and so much like someone who's done a ton of work and who has this perspective and and is that is that accurate would you say that that's how you live these days i i hope so i mean (laughs) (laughs) jen tell me if i'm accurate in thinking that you have your head on right right i think that it's it's all a process you know um I spend a lot of time reading. I have the benefit of having a wonderful therapist who is very, mm-hmm. very familiar with cultic groups, and she sort of speaks my language, and that relationship has been very helpful for me. Um, but some of the things that I think have helped me in that processing are reading about the Unification Church from a critical standpoint, which we were not allowed to do growing up, Mm. Um, reading the stories of other people who have been in similar groups, or even your book Mm. is so important to me to learn that so many of us have had similar experiences, even though you weren't on the inside of a group, you were still very much affected by those group dynamics. Speaking to people who, you know, are deconstructing from the evangelical movement, learning about how all of these things play out in so many similar dynamics has really been a key for me to find some sense of peace and healing because it makes me feel less alone. Mm-hmm. One of the hardest things in exiting the Unification Church was at the time there wasn't really a social movement online of people who had left and so it was a very isolating experience to lose your family lose Mm -hmm. your community and um and i think now for people who are leaving 
there's, um, it's still difficult. I'm never going to dismiss the difficulty, but there are people that are sharing their stories and are sharing their resources. And I think that, um, I, it is my hope that in doing that, we can shorten that time for people in terms of that healing. So they can kind of come from a similar place of, of being able to look at this and, and process it a little bit easier. Where, where are you on the scale of understanding, acceptance, forgiveness, whatever word you want to use <laughs> when it comes to your parents? Because mm-hmm. I don't want to put any of those on you that, mm-hmm. that that's required or necessary at all. Yeah. But I'm curious what your, your approach, you know, how do you deal with your parents mm-hmm. and your relationship and do you see them and what do you, how do you deal with it? So um, my mother passed six years ago, and, and our relationship was very, very difficult. And I think that if she were still alive, I would not have a relationship with her because um, for as much as I loved her, she was the most abusive force in my life. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that she would have done anything that she could to bring me back in because she was looking at it as saving me. Mm-hmm. But um, really, it was emotional abuse. It was, you know, violations and, um, you know. Do you think racism. she knew that she, curious, can mm-hmm. you, and I'm sorry for your loss. I'm sorry she's gone. Do you feel that she really believed it? Like, in her mind, it was not abusive? Oh, in her mind, I don't think it was abusive at all. Mm-hmm. I think that anything that she had to do to save her children, she was going to do. I think in her mind, she was the good guy, and her children had been claimed by Satan. Mm-hmm. So she yeah. was all in, 100%. Oh, yeah, 100%. All in. Um, yeah. I think that, you know, towards the end of her illness, she was having struggles because her marriage was very, very difficult and fraying even before she was re-diagnosed with cancer. And all of her children were out, Um, you know, again, to varying degrees, but none of us were active members in the church. And I think that she was really struggling with either like, where did I go wrong? Mm -hmm. Or was this the right thing? Her last words to me were, maybe I should have let you kids be who you were. And when I share that, I always tell people it's, it wasn't this hallmark moment, you know, mm-hmm. where we had like this tearful reckoning. It was this very offhand comment um, without a lot of reflection behind it. And I, I couldn't respond to it because part of me was like, uh, yeah, duh. And this <laughs> other part of me was like, I guess that's all I'm going to get, you know, like, mm-hmm. okay, I'm just going to process this and accept this. So I... T- I think that um, the difficulty for a lot of us is that when people ask the question of like, where are you with forgiveness? It, and I know that this was not your intent at all, especially how you caveated this. But mm. um, I think for a lot of people, they feel that there is this need to forgive, that mm-hmm. somehow their healing hinges on forgiveness. And actually, I don't believe that. Um I think that forgiveness is a choice. You get to choose whether or not you forgive. And I think that you can heal without it. It's fine, you know. Um, I think that some of us get stuck in our anger. I raise my hand and say I struggle to access my anger because it wasn't allowed. So I'm still working on that part of being like, you know, that was messed up. And how dare they do that? Those are areas that I still lean into. Mm-hmm. Um But I do still work on developing compassion, and I think that the danger for me is getting too compassionate with my Mm -hmm. parents and not holding them accountable. Mm -hmm. So it's 
I think that everybody comes at it from their own place. It's a very nuanced shades of gray kind of situation and there's no one right answer for anybody in that healing process. Yeah, and I think that really speaks to how much healing you've done and how much work you've done on yourself that you understand that Mm. the variety of different feelings we all can have. And I think for me, too, people have asked me, how did you forgive? Do you forgive? Mm. And I forgiveness is really not part of my lexicon that much. I don't know why. Mm. It's something that did understanding or accept or just being okay with things the way they are right now. It seems more accurate for me Mm -hmm. but I think for me part of and I think you you may have gleaned this from the book is that I I came to understand a lot of what happened had nothing to do with who I was or Mm. see I still struggle to say it had nothing (laughs) to do with who I was yeah but I think that for me that was a really important part to getting better and feeling better and I don't know if you also feel that way that what happened didn't have anything really to do with who you were yeah I, I would love to be in a place where, like, I fully integrated that into, like, my bodily knowing, and I'm definitely not there yet, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, in reading the epilogue of your book, like, the conversation that you had with your mother was, like, so healing for me in that it was like reading a fantasy about mm. a conversation I wish I could have had with my own mother, because mm-hmm. even though your mother is not holding herself accountable in the strongest way, it's still more than I think what a lot of first-generation Unification Church members can do and will ever do. So mm-hmm. for me, it was this really beautiful scene, even though it was bittersweet, because mm-hmm. I know that that is not enough for the child that you were. It was. It wouldn't be enough for the child that I was either. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's just a, a super complicated thing. And I guess, you know, the, the thing that I kind of go to a lot is I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a really good space to be in, too, because yeah. if you're raised in a in a place where all the answers are snapped mm-hmm. at you mm-hmm. so that you don't have to think for yourself, they don't want you to think for yourself to be in a space of not knowing yeah. is actually kind of healing, I think. It's so and... uncomfortable. And yet <laughs> sitting in that discomfort of the unknown is so important. Um, and I think maybe you can relate to this being the oldest child and, and somebody that I get the sense of the hypervigilance from mm-hmm. your story of trying to be the fixer and the glue that holds everything together. Sitting in that uncertainty um, is so hard. Mm-hmm. You, you weren't, if, if you felt responsible, and again, your, your epilogue talk speaks to that it wasn't about you. It was about your mother and who your father was. It wasn't about you being worth leaving or not good enough for staying. Um, but sitting in the discomfort of our feelings isn't something that a lot of us had the space to do. Because mm-hmm. for whatever reason, we didn't have the ability and I, I say ability in, in like the, we didn't have the privilege of mm-hmm. processing our feelings. There wasn't a safe space for it. There wasn't space, period. There wasn't. Room. Yeah, if you're not safe, if you're not mm-hmm. safe at home or you have to watch your back all the time, you can't really mm-hmm. do that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or if, you, again, like in your story, I really got this sense of this young person that felt that they had to be perfect and they had to be the glue that would eventually bring mom home and bring the family back together in some way. Or you had to like earn your mother's love and her time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think for a lot of us that have those experiences, again, you don't have to be, you don't have to be raised in a cult. You could have been raised in a dysfunctional family or be the child of divorce. I think that 
sitting with the unknown is so hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and sitting in inaction sometimes too can be really healthy and also very difficult because many of us felt like we had to do something. We had to earn being loved or mm-hmm. we had a mission if you had, you know, the high demand religious group. So yeah, the I don't know is super uncomfortable and I think really important for me personally. Mm. Do you, can you in the final moments we have together, maybe talk about the day or the week or the moment you officially left the church? Yeah. um, The day that I officially, so my former spouse in the Unification Church, it feels very uncomfortable to use the word husband, even though that's the word that that he wanted me to use. Um, He was from Norway and he kept trying to visit me. I had visited him for a period of time and he kept trying to come to the United States and actually wanted to move here. And there kept being reasons why he couldn't come. Um, there was just stuff going on with my family. So you were actually married because we didn't even talk about that. We were uh, we were not married legally. We did mm-hmm. sort of touch on it. I was married as far as the church went, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and and I you were it, how old? I was 20 when that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, And I call it a forced arranged marriage because it was definitely something that I was coerced into. But anyway, um, he wanted to come and visit. And this was when I was caretaking for my mother and she had just been diagnosed with cancer. Um, So, you know, I was taking her to appointments and to chemo and things like that. And um, I told him, no, this isn't a good time. And even my parents were like, no, you can't come. Please don't. You know, our family's going through stuff. And he bought a plane ticket anyway. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that was this uh, final violation in a series of what I felt were violations within the, the relationship. When he showed up, I, I basically dragged him to a workshop that happened to be going on nearby. And, um, and I tried to break the relationship for a long time and he kept basically saying no and pushing me off. Um, so I dragged him to this workshop where there was a leader who happened to be sympathetic to, um, my personal story and some of my struggles. And he finally furnished the paperwork for me to dissolve the union. Um, and it was a, a very, very tearful long day. It wasn't like, you know, walking into an office and signing paperwork. There was... I was crying and maybe screaming and shaking and just, you know, there there was a lifetime of, I think, violations from mm-hmm. growing up in the church sort of encapsulated in this moment where I was like, I am standing up for myself mm-hmm. in this final moment and I'm choosing me over everybody else and everything else, including my mother who, so in the church theology, they believe that all mental illness, physical illness is caused by evil spirits attacking the body. And then that only happens when you've set a foundation, and I've got air quotes going right now, <laughs> for evil spirit world to invade. So basically, if you do anything that isn't, you know, in line with church teaching, uh, they believed that you could be attacked and you could get cancer. So my mother believed that the reason that she had cancer was because I was struggling in my Mm. relationship. And so for me, it was like, even if everybody believes that I am the reason that my mother might be dying of cancer, I'm still going to choose myself, Mm -hmm. Um, which was an incredibly difficult thing to do. And it was something that was, you know, I have to say at the time, I felt like a failure and it was filled with a lot of self-loathing because of the years of training. Mm -hmm. And yet I was like, you know what? I'm going to accept being a failure. I'm going to accept being 
the thing that might have caused my mother's cancer. I cannot do this anymore, and I won't. Uh, I can't even imagine the courage it takes to have all that in mind and still choose yourself. Mm, mm. Really, how long ago was that, Jen? It was 15 years ago. Mm. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. You've done so much work. I mean, to be able <laughs> to talk about it and to kind of understand it and, and create sort of the the architecture for me to understand it. Mm. Well, you thank know? you. Yeah. Um, yeah, so have you let yourself off the hook? <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> and um, I mean, I, I really look back and I am actually so grateful to that younger self who uh, was that brave and was that strong. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't look at her as a failure anymore. That I think was the biggest part of my healing. Um, I'm still working on the compassion for the person that I used to be because there is a lot that I can still judge myself for. Like, why did I let myself get into this situation or that situation or say or do those things? So that's still a process, but I can definitely look back at that younger self and be like, you are a badass. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if it's, if it helps you at all to know that when I speak to you, I can't even imagine the part of you that wasn't like this because you Mm. seem self-actualized to such an extent and so in control of your story. Story, that you. it's hard, you know, and, and that's not to devalue uh, or invalidate at all what you went through and where you've come from, but just mm-hmm. how hard it is for me to even imagine you other than the way you are now. Well, uh, I know that people who've known me for a while have, have definitely seen that progression and it was not pretty at times, you know, yeah. and, and there's still a lot of work to do. Um, but at the same time, I think that that's, that's part of the journey. And so, you know, for anybody who's listening, who's like, I am not self-actualized, I'm a hot mess. That's okay too. (laughs) You know, that is, that is part of the journey. If you're angry, if you can't be angry, if you still judge yourself, that's part of, that's part of the healing. It's the work. Do you have any advice for anyone who might know someone who seems to be really, in rapture and in some type of a group mm-hmm. or some type of movement. I mean, is there anything that you could have been told when you were going through it that would have given you support or helped you see a little bit of uh, a way out? Is there anything people can do if they witness this? I mean, I think it's harder when we're talking about someone who was a minor like myself, mm. you know. Um, I think that one of the most important things in general is to try not to judge because that does uh, really put people's defenses up. Mm. So the times that I felt judged were the times that were the most unhelpful for me. Um, but it's interesting because, like, the woman that asked me, you know, do you know that Reverend Moon manufactures guns? Uh her experience talking to me may have felt as though I shut her out, but in fact, that is an incredibly important part of my deconstruction. It still took me, you know, four years to get out, but that was one of those moments where there was a pivotal shift. And so sometimes just sharing information can be really helpful, again, in a non-judgmental sense. Um, and it, it may be, so, you know, like I have friends who are in multi-level marketing groups that, I feel as though that must be a very difficult situation for them. Mm. I will never say to them, like, oh, don't you know that's a cult? There are people out there that will. There are people out there that will say, you know, that's on sort of the cultic spectrum in terms of the way that people are controlled and coerced. 
But what I have said is like, hey, you know that product, there was a lawsuit about that recently. What do you think about that? Or what do you think about the financial information that only 1% of people in this company actually make a living doing that? And you're spending 40 or 60 hours on this per week. How do you feel about that? Or how Mm -hmm. does your upline treat you? Do you feel respected and seen? I think that those are the sorts of conversations that can be had. You can educate yourself about whatever group your loved one or your friend is involved with and and really just talk to them about it and it it can be hard because most of the time they will shut it down with whatever the group has told them and so you know the time that I Mm. said hey do you know about this product and this lawsuit they're like oh no it's not that and it was frustrating because I was like no it's right here in black and white um but hopefully I just hope that those were one of those things that like planted a seed of doubt for them yeah and, and like what happened for you right exactly mm-hmm. and I think enough of those eventually grow and blossom and hopefully people can make the choices to uh, emerge from those situations mm, very helpful I'm really glad uh, we talked about that for a moment yeah. uh, because I think that it's it's maybe counterintuitive you wouldn't know that that is a really helpful thing you can maybe do yeah. so so Jen where can people who want to connect with you or read your work or find you where can they go Sure. Yeah. The best place is my website. It's www.jenkiaba.com. Um, I'm also very active on Instagram at Jen Kiaba, and I have Facebook and Twitter under the same handle as well. Great, 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 great. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story and for offering all this insight into your experience and, and also the larger cultural conversation about the Unification Church. I'm so grateful for your time and, and, and your perspective. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful to chat with you. And I loved your book. Oh, thank you so much. I can't wait to read yours. And I know it is going to be out. I know it. Well, fingers crossed. <laughs> Thank you for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode, photos, and other episodes you might like, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can connect with me and learn more about episodes on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram also. Just search for my name, Ronit Plank, R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K, and you will find all the updates. If you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe and also rate and review so other people can find it. Thank you so much for listening. 